The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are now going to turn to our Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, and we are in chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, um, we can turn over there. We are in chapter 15. We are in the middle of the chapter now, and we are reading verses 35 to 49. We are going to be reading this. We're going to pray. And then we're going to start looking at this passage together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35 to 49. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body are they, do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of for humans, and another for animals, and another for birds, and another for fish. And there are heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly bodies of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown is in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spirit, but is not the spiritual that is first, but is <clears throat> let me start that again. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of the dust, the second man from is from heaven, and was the man of dust. So also are those who are of the dust, as is the man of heaven. So also are those who are of heaven. Just as we are born of the image of the man of dust, so shall also we bear the image of the man of heaven. All right, so let's pray, and then let's ask for God's help. Father, I pray that as we read through these passages and work through this text, that our hearts will be filled with the powerful hope of Jesus Christ over the dead. Our hope in Jesus would be steadied by your sovereign power, that we would see and realize and experience afresh your creative joyful power, and that our hope would rise as we experience this and, knew, and know this more deeply together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Could we, um, <laughs> sorry guys, we're working through all this stuff together. When we, uh, I'm not sure if you've experienced this when you have seen sports interviews. Um, when we do sports, inter- when, we, when you watch sports interviews, Often what happens is this, uh, this sort of question, how did you prepare for this situation? How did you prepare for it? And what they often say is, well, our training often ex- it was just simply running the fundamentals. I don't know if you've seen this. It, it, it's, inc- it's incredible to me how um, these world-class athletes will process and they reduce their entire game strategy down to, well, we just ran the fundamentals. Like, you see this, uh, like, I, I watched an interview with uh, Conor McGregor's 
coach and how does he prepare for his MMA fights? Well, we just run the fundamentals. And you see this with you know Bill Belichick and how the Patriots prepare for this game or that game. We just drill the fundamentals. And I think the reason that they, they always emphasize that rather than, well, we ran this special trick play or we ran all these special things is that when you get into the heat of a moment and you start drilling down into the deep um, strategy of something that you can't prepare for, um, it's difficult to actually like know what you're going to do in that situation. The more important thing is like you need to know the fundamentals. Like I don't know with football, I don't know anything about football. So like what, how you kick the ball, how you run the ball, how you carry catch the ball, whatever it is, you know. But when you're running, you know, the fundamentals of any sort of discipline, you just run the fundamentals on how do you do this extra, the most basic and fundamental exercises. And what we're dealing with in this passage here is effectively Paul is kind of like running the fundamentals. He's, he's reminding them, we had the whole beginning of the chapter starts out, I want to remind you, brothers, of the basics of the faith. And as they're running into these questions of, okay, so we're wondering about this whole resurrection thing, how do we play this out? What are the details? Um, he starts to get a little bit frustrated and a little bit testy, and he just kind of basically says, okay, let's get back to basics. Let's remember the God that we're talking about. Let's go back to the fundamentals. Right, when it, the Bible actually doesn't actually give us a whole lot of details on a myriad of issues in our lives. Like for example, um, the Bible doesn't give us a playbook in the course of a pandemic of global proportions. Here's how you continue to do worship as a church. Right, there's no details on that, but we have fundamental things of how we we do our life together as a church, and so that's what Paul is doing here. He, they are beginning to kind of get into, okay, so when when God's going to raise the the dead. What's the recipe of how this works out? And Paul's fundamentals is he's driving them back to saying, look, the resurrection is in the future. We need hope for what that looks like, and we need to remember what God is like. Right? At the end of the day, the drill, the basic fundamental drills that he's doing is who is God and what is he like? The resurrection is the presenting issue, but the deeper issue is really there's a lot of fear about the future, there's a lot of fear about what the the world is what a resurrected world is going to be like. How are people going to be raised? What does it look like? And Paul reminds them by saying, basically, look, the Lord is sovereign. He's the creator of all things, and we need to remember that His sovereign power is the foundation, is the 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 dynamics, the grounding of our hope in Jesus. Remember that as, our, as we face these fearful days, whatever the situation is, whatever the, 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 that causes our fear, that even, whether it's COVID-19 or it's just a, we struggle with anxiety, that we are dealing with a God whose sovereign power strengthens our hope in the future. So here's the main point of our passage this morning. Here's the, if you might say, the, the fundamentals that we're drilling. Our hope in Jesus is steadied by God's sovereign power. That's the main point of this whole passage, right? The, the resurrection is just kind of like this presenting issue. There's a deeper issue of our hope confronting fear and being stirred by faith in who God is that helps our hope be grounded in God's sovereign power. So our hope in Jesus is steadied by God's sovereign power. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at how God's power confronts our fears and then see how, because of that power, our hope is infused or built with in anticipation of the future in Jesus. So we're going to pick up in verse 35. God's joyful power confronts our fears. That's the first paragraph that we're going to look at. God's joyful power confronts our fears. 
Let me read the first few verses of this, and we'll kind of work through it uh, section by section. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that it is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat of some other kind. Right? Paul does this thing. He does this also um, in Romans 9 where he kind of like plays out an argument. And I'm not sure if he's like addressing like um, Jacob, that punk who's always asking the, those like weird questions in class, like if it's specific to a person or if it's um, just kind of like he's playing out this argument. But in effect, Paul is getting a little bit frustrated to drive home the reality of like, look, like there's no recipe. There's no recipe playbook for like, here you have a resurrected body plus the gravestone with a little bit of some dirt on top, and don't forget the wood. Let's put the wood in there, and uh, then we kind of like pull it all together, and then here's a resurrected body, right? He's playing out this argument to say, look, just like you put a you know a seed of some kind into the ground, an acorn, you don't get a gigantic acorn that bursts out of the ground. Something different comes out of the ground, an oak tree, right? He's basically saying like there's a deeper dynamic going on here, and so. Here's what we're going to do. Pick up here with me in verse 37, uh, 38. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. Perhaps of one kind, to eat, uh, as he has chosen, to each uh, kind of seed to its own body. Right? When, when Paul is beginning to address this question, okay, what are the details on the resurrection? What does that look like? What is the future of what our bodies look like? He begins to drive at the power of God. Do you see that? Verse 38 but God gives it a body as he has chosen. That is the power of God. He's chosen to give whatever happens, whatever exists, everything in creation, he's chosen to give it a body as he's chosen. So you have this in a similar, actually, where um, in uh, Matthew 22, verse 29, where this, um, the Sadducees were kind of going after Jesus about um, the resurrection and what is the resurrection going to be like, Jesus has the same similar rea- reaction. He says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, right? When it comes to this whole dynamic of what does a resurrected body look like, and what is what is it? What's the experience of a resurrected body? Paul and Jesus drive at look. Don't get caught on the details of that. There's really not a lot to be afraid of because we're talking about the power of God, right? Things die and go in the ground and they come out different, and so it's going to be with your body. You're going to your body's going to go in the ground when you die, and something else is going to come out when Jesus resurrects the body. So then let's, let's come back here to verse 38. God gives it a body as he has chosen, right, to each thing that exists and each kind of seed to its own body, right? Here's the fundamental. God gives all things, their existence, their sustenance, their created form as he chooses, right? And fundamental to this whole thing, right, we're not going to get into, you know, how did the world get created and Genesis and all that stuff. Here's the deal. Baseline, if God creates everything out of nothing, all bets are off in terms of understanding the beginning, right? If he creates everything out of nothing by the power of his word, all bets are off for trying to figure out the recipe of how things came into existence. And that's what's going on here is that Paul says, look, God gives everything its existence as he's chosen, it's not just existence by raw power, though, right? It is an existence of God's choosing, his will. He desires something. So let's read the rest of this paragraph, and then we'll kind of circle back and put all this together. Verse 39, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish, 
There's heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory in the sun, there's another glory in the moon, another glory in the stars, for stars differ from stars and glory, right? You see, uh, what Paul is trying to do here is he's not trying to give a whole like, catalog or um, a full Wikipedia page of everything that exists in the world and how God made it. He is giving like snapshot examples of here is God's creative power, right? God's creative power can be seen in how he's designed fish. And then God's creative power is seen how he's designed stars. <laughs> and, I mean, you have people who spend their entire lives to become experts in fish, and you have people who spend their entire lives to become experts in stars, and God is the one who designed both of those things with perfect order and perfect function as they are, and he knows everything about them and everything else in between. Right? The, the, the point of what Paul's driving at is God's creative power is so infinite that he can design something that has not just existence, but did you notice how he's describing it here, uh, verse um, 40, but there is of heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of each is different. Right? He has glory of the heavenly bodies and glory of the earthly bodies. It's not just that God creates, like he creates in black and white, and it just exists. It's the, the, the incredible thing is that Paul is driving us here to say, God has given created things a glory of their own. Right? God created all things, not just of raw power. It seems to me that what he's saying is he's given created existence to this thing so that it would have a glory that's unique to that thing. Right? He enjoys expressing his power and increasing the knowledge of him through the glory of that thing, right? This is why it would be, you know, it's one thing for my sons to ask me for, hey, dad, can I have a sandwich? And then it's another thing for me to say, okay, here's a peanut butter and jelly, there you go. But then it's different for me to say, okay, well, you want a sandwich? Let me craft this artisanal sandwich on sourdough bread and freshly picked tomatoes and hand-sliced ham, and then we craft it and toast it just right and cut it with that side cut because that makes things everything everything better. And then here's a special sandwich, right? What this is saying is that God didn't just kind of like, oh, you need a star. Okay, well, there's a star. You know, let's just put a big old beacon out in the middle of the sky, and then everything orbits around it. He designed those stars. He designed fish to have a glory, a radiance, a weight to them that causes us to respond in awe of what they are. He's created everything to have its own type of glory. That's, we kind of make fun of hipsters with their desire to have artisanal this or that, but really they're tapping into, well, God is an artistic, creative, infinitely joyful God who likes things to be enjoyed, and he's created them to for us to experience them that way. So why can't we just mirror that and how we live and function, right? You see this actually, um, just to try to pick up on this, uh, on verse 41, there is one glory of the sun, there's another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. Did we get this slide? I'm not sure we got this slide. If we can throw this up. This is what uh, UX Scully um, looks like in comparison to our sun. It is 1,700 times bigger than our sun, Right? My understanding is that if it were to exist, it would be larger than the furthest planets in orbit around our sun by multiple, multiple magnitudes, right? Our Earth could not exist and orbit around uh, UY Scully. It is the largest known star in the universe. I'm really glad that we orbit around our sun. <laughs> it would be really hot. 
rather toasty around UX Scully. The sun has its own glory, right? The glory of the sun is that it has these, uh, what, eight and a half planets because Pluto is constantly going in and out of whether it's a dwarf planet or a real planet, whatever it is. And then you've got Jupiter and Saturn and all these things that orbit around it. And then of all things, in the middle of all this gigantic universe and expanse is our one little third rock from the sun that orbits around it. And then God focuses his attention on us on this planet. That's a different glory than what, than what UX Scully has being the largest star in the universe. But they're both of value. They both show off this creative, infinitely beautiful, glorious power of God, this joyful power that he creates the world with, that he infuses things to be enjoyed with. That's why when, when astronomers, whether they're believers or not, they look at the sky, they marvel at what God has created. So when Paul confronts our fears about the future and whether, what's the resurrected body going to be like? Can I get the details on this? I want to know the recipe. Make sure that I, I'm dressed just so and that I've got everything together and so that when I die, then I'll be able to be raised from the dead. Paul confronts that and says, you've forgotten who you're playing with. If God can do these sort of glorious things to be enjoyed by his power, when it comes to the time for you to be raised from the dead, do you think that he's going to be lacking for imagination? Do you think God's going to be struggling and scratching, scratching his head on how he's going to create a new body for us? Right? This, is, this is often what our anxieties about the future imagine, is that we actually imagine... This is a, a, a small definition that I've used in my own life and then in my pastoral life for anxiety. Not all anxiety fits this, but I think the large majority of our anxiety about the future is just simply this. Imagining a future without God. Right? I get that there's physiological dynamics that go on with anxiety. That's not what I'm addressing. At a heart level, when we get all kind of worked up about this or that, what's the world going to be like after Corona 19 passes? How are we going to do church? How are we going to stay safe? What's it going to look like for us to have a community together? What's my job going to look like? You, know, you start going down, we, we've lost sight and forgotten. We've forgotten a future. We've imagined a future without God. That's, that's often what's going on in our anxiety and our fear about the future. That's what's going on here. They had forgotten that, um, just to remember you guys, uh, the person who raises the dead is God himself and he creates all things. So let's not get too worried about that presenting question there in verse 35. How are the dead raised and what kind of body do they come? We're talking about an infinitely creative God, but don't think it's going to be a problem for him. What, how am I going to find a spouse? How am I going to find this problem? How am I going to fix these issues for my kids? How am I going to find a job that's going to be okay after this whole coronavirus thing? What is it going to look like for us to be together as a church and not get sick? We're imagining a future without God. Those are real questions, right? Their questions are real questions. But more fundamentally, let's remember, our faith isn't in figuring out all the details. Our faith is in a God who is joyfully powerful and creates all things and continues to do it because he likes being God. <laughs> here, let me throw this quote up here for you guys. This is something that I often think about with Chesterton. It's a quote from G.K. Chesterton. He says, Because children have abounding vitality, which um, <clears throat> many of us at Quarantined at Home are very familiar with right now, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. And all the moms in the room said, amen. <laughs> How many times have you read, right, good night, moon, like on infinite repeat, 
50,000 times. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person, because it is again, uh, he does it again until he is nearly dead. <laughs> for for grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt a monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt a monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately and has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he, is eternal, that his, that he has eternal appetite for infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. This is one of those quotes that reminds me that it may be that my anxiety and fear is that I have lost the childlike dependence on God and grown old and crotchety in my life, in my faith. It may be that God actually enjoys the fresh mercy that he gives us every morning, the fresh delights that he, he supplies for us every day, the sun that he casts over our days and enjoy, that we enjoy on, the, on our skin, the breeze that he, he brushes us with in the, in the afternoon, that God says to all of these things, do it again, do it again, just like children do with playing and books and all of that stuff. And we have grown a little bit fearful and anxious because we've grown old and crotchety in our faith and said, God, uh, your joyful power is not sufficient for my expert understanding of this world. Maybe we've grown older and than the childlike delight of our God. Not that the world isn't a scary place and not that there aren't real dynamics and dangers to be thought through. But if we're dealing with a God who is joyful and creates all things to be enjoyed and glorious, when our anxiety runs into that, bumps into that, his joyful power pounces on our anxieties to overcome our hearts again, like a little cat with its ball of yarn. He delights to overcome us with his joyful power to soothe us and remind us again, to draw us into who is it that we're dealing with here? So could it be that the great deal of our anxiety and fear in life is that we've lost sight of our good, joyful, and powerful God for who he is. And if that's the case, here's the second half of this passage that we're going to look at with Paul. You see, it's not just that we have a joyful God of power. It's that God's renewing power builds our anticipation. So that's what we're going to look at here in verse 42 to 49. This is the second half of our passage. God's renewing power builds our anticipation. If our, if our fears are confronted by his joyful power, the result is that his renewing power rebuilt, excuse me, our anticipation. So let me read this passage for us. 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Let's pause there and just kind of pause here. See, what, what is being talked about here is not merely, look, whatever you put into the grave is then raised up just as it was, right? It's not that a, re a restoration to what, was hap what, what their bodies were before they died or who we were before we died. It is a reversal of all the decay that happened, right? It is a dishonor. It is weak. It is shameful on the created level 
for our bodies to die. We were not made to die, right? We, we were not made to sin. We were not made to die. But that is the result of sin in, our, uh, in the world. It is a result of the fall in our lives. But it is, while we, are, we die in dishonor, while we die in, sh- in weakness, we are raised in glory. We are raised in power. We are raised in honor. It is a reversal, not merely to the restoration of where we were, but as a renewal into a new existence. So that's kind of where Paul picks up then. We are not merely just kind of returned to normal, but an absolute reversal of decay into flourishing and pers- purposeful growing in, human, in our human lives. And so here we go into some deep theology stuff, as Paul usually does. He's kind of making a simple point. Okay, guys, like, you're going to be renewed. But then he kind of, like, gets into, oh, and by the way, there was the first Adam and the second Adam, and you kind of get to this passage in verse 45, and you're kind of like, where did, where did Adam come into the picture here? <laughs> so verse 45, are we good with the camera? It just stopped. So are we back on? I've got red. Yep, we are live. We're live? We're live. Are we live? Can you hear me? Can you feel me? Are we good to go? (laughs) Okay. All right, so we're just going to pick up like nothing ever happened. There was no break in the stream, and we're just going to keep going. Is everybody good to go with that? So... I'm going to pick up at the beginning of point two, and we're just going to run through this. I promise. Um, we don't know what happened with our internet, and so we're just doing the best we can. Uh, pray for pray for us. <laughs> so we're back here at verse 42. God's renewing power builds our anticipation. And so as Paul has talked through all the ways in which our bodies, um, when he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, when we die and our bodies go into the ground, Um, that is not what we were made for. And so he picks up here in verse 45, as it is written, for the first Adam came a life-giving spirit and the last Adam became a life. The first Adam became a life, became a a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. What he's picking up on here is this huge story within the Bible is the first Adam and the second Adam. That's kind of how the Bible is cut. Um, It starts out in the beginning with one Adam and you you don't actually hear a lot about him for the rest of the Bible, and then suddenly here in the, in the New Testament, we're talking about the second Adam. Why is that? So here's the deal. When God made Adam and Eve, he put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He made Adam, when you look back at, the, at, at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, he made Adam to be the prophet, priest, and king of Eden. Eden was supposed to be his temple. He was supposed to protect the temple from uh, the enemies of God. He was supposed to do that by the word of God and to protect God's people and to provide for God's people and to speak God's word um, in provision for God's people. Adam failed at being the priest um, to protect the, the, the sacred uh, ground of Eden. Um, he did not um, hold true to the word of God as the prophet, and he failed to kill the snake as he should have in the, in the Garden of Eden. And so what happens is because Adam failed, the rest of the world is thrown into the decay of Adam and they get a life-giving, he is a life-giving being, but not a life-giving spirit. Had Adam obeyed in the beginning of Genesis, the world would have been glorified and we would have been ushered into an increasingly glorified world. But Adam failed, and so we're in an increasingly decaying world under the rule of Adam. So that's why in the book of Je- uh, in um, Matthew, when Jesus shows up on the scene, what does Jesus do, right? He walks through water, he's tempted in the desert, 
he creates a new, uh, he walks up onto a mountain, so to speak, uh, a, a retelling of the book of Genesis, right? Where the earth comes out of the water and God gives his word and provides for his people. Um, Jesus is the new Adam in the book of Matthew. He is the new prophet, priest, and king who provides for God's people, reigns over them, provides God's word for them, and provides God's sacrament of grace to them. So Jesus is seen as the second Adam, and when people believe and trust in Jesus, they are grafted into him. Just as we were a part of Adam, the first Adam by nature, we are grafted in by faith into the, new, the second Adam. And so there is a lot more that could be said about this. Actually, Paul talks about this again in, in Matthew, I'm sorry, the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 12 to the end, where we have one identity or the other. You're either the first Adam and you die in him, or you're in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, and you live eternally in him. And so when it comes to verse 45 to 49, there's these five contrasts that, that Paul gives us. The first Adam was of the dirt and leads all of his people tainted by his sin to the dirt, from dust you came, and from dust you shall return. He gives physical life, but not spiritual life. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, reverses all of these things and reverses them into a renewing, um, ever-increasing power. So here's what we're going to do. Verse 44 is where I want to draw our attention, and then we will kind of close with this section. What is a spiritual body? Did you pick up on that? Verse 44, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body, right? It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. What is a spiritual body? What is, what, what is a body that is spiritual? A body that, uh, that is spiritual, a spiritual body, is a re- has the reversal of the, of the decay upon it. It has splendor and power. It is characterized by the Holy Spirit. When you see that word spiritual, you should recall what we talked about at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 12, where we talked about what is the purpose of the, of the Holy Spirit. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to give us the life of Jesus Christ and draw our hearts to live under his rule and reign. Well, Jesus Christ has conquered Satan, sin, and death, and so a spiritual body is one that has no longer the power of Satan, sin, or death over it and is ever increasing in our experience of him. It is an enhanced body and above all the capacities of our human existence as they are right now. But here's one of the things that's critical to the human, uh, uh, to the biblical story is that a physical body is actually a good thing. Remember how we talked about how in the Greek theology of the time, bodies were kind of nasty and dirty and all of that stuff was wrong. Physical, physicality, created existence is a good thing. <laughs> And God likes it and loves it and enjoys it and wants us to increase in our experience of a physical existence. And so a a spiritual body is one that has all of our capacities as a human existence infused and empowered and built up and increasing in life by the presence and rule and reign of the Spirit in our lives. They are real bodies, and they are enhanced and Spirit-filled capacities beyond and above our decaying existence. Now, that sounds kind of uh, ethereal or kind of like, okay, I guess so. But think about it. Like, our bodies are made to be communal bodies, right? We are made physically to be in existence with other people. I, I would guess that since all of this stuff with the coronavirus and the social distancing and quarantining and all that stuff, the amount of depression that some of us experience 
is just simply related to the fact that we were made to be around other people. We were made to have not virtual conversations, but physical conversations with other people. Right? There's all this scientific research about how just a simple hug massively increases your enjoyment and happiness in life, right? What is it? Like an eight-second hug is, so to speak, like drastically supposed to contribute psychologically to the change of your mood, right? We are created for physical experience and community, not merely intellectually and not merely just kind of like what sort of skills you get, but as a community. So, so for example... The Bible talks about um, at the resurrection, there'll be no more marriage. And we're kind of like, what? There's no more marriage and there's no sex in heaven and all that stuff? It's like, look, what this is saying in this passage is to say your experience of what it means to be human is enhanced and uh, added to beyond your capacity to understand now in the resurrection. So the highest form of intimacy in this life is a marriage covenant where you have the intimacy of a husband and a wife together. What it's saying is that the resurrection, there's no longer a need for that because in the resurrection, our spiritual experience, our experience of human interaction and intimacy is enhanced and above our capacity to understand now. We will have the ability to have an intimate, joyful, deep communion with other people beyond what we could possibly imagine now because we will be spiritual beings infused with the life of the Spirit beyond what we are able to experience now. So a spiritual body is more and and not merely just kind of like 2.0 of the human existence. It is an ever-increasing experience of life. It is an ever-increasing delight and enjoyment. It is an increasing experience of a heightened humanity. That's what, when Paul says, your resurrected life is going to be like this, and it's going to be a human experience, but it's going to be up beyond and beloved, beyond what you can imagine. Walt Disney had this phrase of calling it, let's just plus it, right? Whatever the story is, they're you know, writing Snow White, when you're working through the storyline, you're working through the artistry of the, story, of, the, of the stills, let's plus it. Let's make sure that it is beyond and above what we could normally produce. That's what the resurrected life is like, beyond and above, ever-increasing and enhancing of every aspect of what it means to be human, but beyond our capacity to understand now. Again, it's a quote from G.K. Chesterton. He says, The trumpet of imagination, like the trumpet of the resurrection, calls the dead out of their graves. So how do these realities of what we will experience raise and heighten our anticipation of the resurrection from the dead? Right? This is one of the ways in which Paul, or Paul is addressing our fears and anxieties. Our fears and anxieties often are, is our imaginations getting fixated on our inability to imagine a future with God. And we just kind of play it out, right? What's the world going to be like after the coronavirus? What's the life of our church going to be like? What's my job? And we just kind of play out the imagination. And what Paul is doing here is he is saying, your imagination run the fundamentals of God's power and who he is and what he's like, and then play that out in anticipation of actually experiencing beyond and above what you can imagine, right? Chesterton's little quote says, use your imagination to speak God's power and what he's like to yourself to fight your own anxiety and fear so that your, re- your hope will be grounded in the reality of who Jesus is and what he is like. So 
when we're talking about all the social distancing right now and the strain that that's causing, especially pray for your extroverted friends, they are dying right now, right? They, they are just dying on the inside. They are not able to talk to people. They can get around people and they have to stay six feet away. If they're a hugger, they want to give everybody around them a hug and a handshake. <coughs> Excuse me. So pray for your extroverted friends. But imagine an existence that is coming one day where we would not merely be able just to kind of be around each other, but an existence with our Savior beside us, where it's not merely over, but we have a more and plus experience of community. Imagine, and we're all right now, we're looking forward to the day where we can sit around a fire, give each other a hug, go back to church, get in person, raise our hands in worship, go to small group, go to work. All these things would be back to normal. The resurrection from the dead, if this passage is true, is God's power and the resurrected spiritual bodies that he is creating for us. What will our community of life be like? And we'll talk back on this social distancing stuff and be like, I could never imagine experiencing this like this now. For our fear and anxiety, if we're putting these pieces together, we're seeing that one great tool that we have to work against our current fears and anxieties is our imagination to anticipate God's power in our lives. What is the story that your fears and anxieties are trying to weave into your soul that exclude God from the picture? And then now, by the power of Jesus, what story can you tell your soul about the power of God to overcome Satan's sin and death in your life? How will God use your imagination, a tool that he has given you, to weave a story of anticipation for what his power can do in your life. What we've been talking through in this passage, and I know that we've had all this kind of like, we got the technical difficulties right in the middle, so we'll just end with this reminder of the main point of this passage. Our hope in Jesus is steadied by God's sovereign power. Let us in these days, as we face all the situations with the coronavirus and all the, the swirl of the news and all of a Facebook post this way or that way and all none of that stuff, let's just set that aside and let's run the fundamentals. What is the fundamental of your faith as a Christian? What is the fundamentals that you're invited into if you're looking towards Jesus to try to figure out how he changes your life? He creates everything out of nothing and he's happy about it. When you've got that God running the course of your life, that God can overcome and will overcome any story that your fears and anxieties would tr seek to sell you. And he will fill your soul with a hope that is steadied in God's sovereign power because of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.